1: My name is rich schmidt we're here with whitney schubert it's august 30th 2022 and we're at the nicholson library at linfield university whitney thank you so much for joining us today
2: thank you for having me first
1: question to get you started is why wine
2: why wine you know i i grew up in eastern oregon um near walla walla pendleton oregon it's about an hour from walla walla and I grew up around my, my father's a diesel mechanic, and um, in exchange for for shop time, um, he worked harvest every year, wheat harvest, and um, I rode the combine with him and sat at the grain elevator and all that stuff. And I I was around a lot of farmers um, growing up, um, being in you know farm country in eastern Oregon, and so I think my original. What drew me to wine was probably more the agricultural aspects of it than um, than any sort of lifestyle elements. Mm-hmm. I think that has continued my interest in that has only only grown um, but honestly, being in oregon wine country for for college um, helped to kind of i wouldn't say solidify it because it still happened uh, you know a number of years later but having it around you feeling like there was something um, you know kind of culturally, it, it was really a part of the McMinnville community, and um, so even though we as students, I mean, until we were of age, it was something we knew about, and then when we were of age, my girlfriends and I would go tasting, and, um, and so that was maybe my earliest interest, and then I studied French. French and European studies were my minor, I studied, um, my major was international studies. It all sounds very intentional right now, but at the time, <laughs> at the time, um, it, really, it really wasn't. Um, And so I um, studied abroad in college. I had a host mom who was, she she liked wine and she liked to indulge and she was very interested in all of us um, enjoying wine at the dinner table as well. And I remember at one point, there were three of us that lived with the host family, two Linfielders and then one uh, Swedish woman, young woman. There were times when we it almost appeared like we each had our own individual bottle at the table um just because of the sheer number of bottles on the table and so that was interesting because I got to taste definitely only french wine the french forgive me french people for saying so but are quite provincial and tend to not drink anything but french wine um and um after I graduated I taught English I um did a Fulbright teaching um calendar year in Southern France and um, it was mostly conversational French that I taught um, and I didn't teach very many hours a week and after having crammed as much into my college experience as possible it was really wild to have 12 to 15 hours of responsibility and I didn't really know what else to do with myself and a woman who I was teaching with lent me a bike and um, so I started riding around to the little villages and towns near where I was teaching and started tasting, and that was really interesting because I was tasting wines that were made with grape varieties that were very different than Pinot Noir, Southern French varieties, and I also was tasting enough that I I didn't like everything, which was also new to me. I I hadn't really had enough wine or enough experiences to start um, distinguishing one wine from another or um, discerning much of anything yet and so that was my first experience really recognizing differences in wines and um, and so I came home after that year of teaching and worked um, an Oregon wine harvest and then stayed on at that winery I worked for Rex Hill at the time um, and stayed on at that winery for the first year working both in the tasting room and in um, eventually working the Portland market with some of their higher end wines Um, and that was when I came into contact with a lot of local distributors and um, had much more exposure to international wines and ultimately um, knew that I wanted to to work with French wines if possible I wanted to be able to use my my language skills and so um, so yeah I think the original appeal was or the original interest was really agricultural and um, and from there being able to explore um, French culture and French language, and then of course continue to be connected to the Oregon uh, wine industry. It all, it all kind of came together, like I said, in a very serendipitous way.
1: Seemingly intentional, but mm-hmm. not similar. Yeah. Well, let's back up for a second before we get into the wine and talk about the Linfield. You mentioned obviously being Linfielders. So tell us about what brought you here and tell us a little bit about your time at Linfield.
2: I, like I said, I grew up in Eastern Oregon, but my, my mom remarried when I was in junior high, and so I went to high school in Portland. Um, And so I was really interested in the liberal arts schools in the Pacific Northwest, and um, there were a number that were very compelling to me, but there's just, it's hard to explain until you visit a campus when you kind of have that feeling, and Linfield very much felt like home to me very early on. Um, I liked that it was far enough away that I felt like I was spreading my wings a little, but close enough if I wanted to go home for a family birthday or, uh, you know, any occasion, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, so far away. I made the best friends of my life at Linfield. I'm still really, um, thankful for the group of women that I met and continue. I just yesterday, um, had a, a gathering with I would say half of them, all those who were able to come to meet my my second child, and so that was really special, and um, told them all I was coming to campus today. And So the friendships that I made at Linfield were um, really probably, I wouldn't say the best thing I took away from Linfield because obviously the education was um, the point, (laughs) and um, something I'm really grateful for, but um, people who really helped shape me in my young adult life Um, And then I had incredible professors, the class sizes, um, the attention, the uh, ability to participate in many, many, many different things, you know, you felt like you could have a pretty well-rounded existence and you could engage in a lot of different activities, be they, you know, I was an athlete in, at Linfield as well. And so I was able to have a lot of experiences and feel like I left kind of getting everything, everything out of it that I, I possibly could.
1: talked about that a little bit earlier about kind of, you just mentioned like maximizing your college time. So give us an idea of some of the things
2: you were involved with, in, some of your maybe fondest memories as you look back. Um, well fondest memories were, were absolutely spent, um, with friends, the junior and senior year, we had a house off campus and, um, it was really our our little cottage we had so much good time together um, and it wasn't just we learned a lot together all of us and there was a lot of support and a lot of um, a lot of love as we all kind of found our way to our eventual careers all of those things and so um that was really special the time with with the girls at, at the davis street house that's what we, the davis street house um, studying abroad was really A really exceptional experience. I played volleyball for three of the four years because one semester I was in France and then when I came home from France for whatever reason I felt like I just needed to know if I could still run the hurdles. So I did track my senior year um, which is also a really good way I will tell you to work off some baguette and rounds of camembert. Um, Because I certainly indulged while I was in France. Um, So I came home a little bit um, rounder. And um, so I ran track that year and Kilgore got it all out of me. Um, And that was running for him with uh, the team was really, really great. I I definitely um, looked back and and thought, oh, I wish I would have done this, you know, all four years. And at the same time. I have a love-hate relationship with tracks. So maybe it was a good thing that I just did it the, the one year. Um, I was vice president of the student body. That was um, also a really, really great experience. Um, and interestingly, now that I look back on it, a lot of the work that we did with the student body always required um, a lot of engagement with the facilities crew and um, whether we were doing a concert or we were doing a fair or who knows what. And so, um, I developed a relationship with a lot of the facilities crew, and then later, when I was director of IPNC, it just it felt like a homecoming every year. Being on campus, working with all of those same individuals, and um, and I really felt like again, it, it's it's so interesting to think about how that time working with student body and all of the people on campus that I developed relationships with, all of those same relationships, you know revisited uh, during the IPNC years, and, um, and that was really special for me.
1: So when you came back to Oregon after your French adventures, uh, what prompted you to do a harvest? What, what made you think you wanted to go do an Oregon wine harvest?
2: Well, I just wanted to understand how wine was made. Um, i now realize there, there are a lot of people that i you know in the industry who um come to it via restaurants or you know many other avenues and who never really have the opportunity you know it makes sense chronologically to work a harvest and to follow the wine throughout a, a production year and i really wanted that i wanted to understand um and you know honestly now i've been in the business for 20 years and i still wish that i could go work harvest and wish that i could you know, follow those same wines throughout a year to develop a bigger understanding. Because, um, you know, certainly there are the agricultural, scientific, chemical aspects of of wine, but you know, the the mysterious parts. You kind of come to terms with the fact that you're never really going to grasp those things. That's part of the mystique or the appeal. You know, the but the other elements. I I really I didn't want to kind of fake it till I made it. I, I mean. We all do that to some degree, you know, especially with something as complex as wine, but, but I wanted to try to understand as much as I could on the front ends.
1: And so what year was it you started at Regsville?
2: See, I graduated in 2001, and I spent that next year in France, so I think it would have been the 2002 harvest.
1: So tell me about your first harvest experience.
2: Well, it's great because I worked in the tasting room during the day, Um, A lot of um, fruit was either harvested very early in the morning or in the evenings purely because of of temperatures. Um, And so I would work the tasting room in the daytime and then in the evenings, you know, there was crew dinner and then, you know, I definitely picked fruit. But I did a lot of um, cleaning of tanks and barrels and pumping. Filters and you know, it just it was it was great because I, I learned um, so many different aspects of of a wine harvest. Um, and now looking back, you know, it's so nice when I'm engaging with a winery about an order and they're trying to clear out their cellar to make room for the incoming vintage and to have actually an idea of what that ultimately looks like for a winery. Um, I think it served me later in my in my career.
1: What did you find the most, sort of, would be surprising or interesting part of, of a great harvest of winemaking?
2: Um, the most interesting part? Well, I mean, the camaraderie, ultimately, for me, was one of the things that I um, was most drawn to. You know, I've learned over the years that I, it's unusual for me to like a wine, um, and meet the person who made it and not feel the same way. I, the, the correlation between grower, maker, and end product is, um, is a very interesting aspect of the business for me. And that's not to say that, you know, it's a foolproof. But often you'll meet somebody and then you taste their wine and think, oh, that makes sense, you know? Um, and uh, so that that's something that I think I was... Early on, surprised by making those kind of connections, those links between people and land, and people and 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 wine, and products.
1: So after that harvest, did you? What were you thinking about doing with the? Were you thinking wine was something you wanted to stay in forever? Were you thinking like what was your kind of plan at that point?
2: Not necessarily. Um, I mean, I enjoyed my time in the tasting room. It's really fun because there were people from all over the world who would make their way through the tasting rooms. Um, and so I had a lot of interesting conversations. Um, and I, you know, Rex Hill was an early-ish winery. I think it, you could technically say maybe second wave founders and then kind of that second wave. And so I was always really, even at that time, interested in the, the history of, of the Oregon wine industry and the role that various people played. And so it was it was also fun for me to be able to try to parlay some of that into the kind of like presentations you're doing in a tasting room you know you kind of have to, you do the song and dance and um at some point you, you you kind of get tired of saying the same thing over and over again you get tired of saying the same details about the same wines. you recognize that there are some people in front of you who are really interested and other people who are just you know ready to have the next glass and so um it was fun to learn a few things along the way that i could um stories that I could tell. And eventually I started doing tours for the winery. And so then it was a lot about the history of the winery itself and the different people who had been, you know, at the founders. And the founders were actually still uh, still owners and at the helm at the time that I was, I was there. Um, I'm, I'm now forgetting the, even the question that you asked. What well, you were thinking at the end at oh, of the end that time. Oh, thanks. Um, and so, I knew that I was enjoying myself. I wasn't certain that it was the, you know, it was the career I ultimately wanted to pursue. Um, but the wines that we were pouring in the tasting room were the higher end, the single vineyard uh, wines, and they were wines that um, didn't have the best distribution locally, which seemed unusual to me. You know, the larger production wine you could find just about anywhere. And so I kind of pitched to the winery to to allow me to go into the city and make some appointments with some restaurants and some retailers and see if we could get some traction. And it wasn't until I started doing that, that I realized there might be something there. The tasting room, while it was really interesting and fun, was not something I wanted to do for forever and ever. The monotony kind of started to wear on me. And so when I was able to be out in the market and talking about the wines and meeting other um, you know, meeting the buyers, of course, and then other distributors, that, that was really interesting to me. And um, that's when I started, you know, the, the people who sell wine in Portland at that time were very friendly. So you'd be standing with your wine bag waiting to taste and the salesperson who was tasting with the buyer would say, hey, you want to, you want to try this? And pretty soon we're opening each other's bags and taking out wines. And it, I can tell you, it is not like that in New York. And I don't even know if it's still like that in Portland, but for me at the time, it was great because I got to taste a lot of things. And, um, and I was young and energetic and my naivety completely worked to my benefit. I just didn't know what I didn't know. And so I just um, kept following what was fun and interesting. Um, and so that's when I met, um, th- at the time it was a-, a man named Rayfer Nelson who was coming down from Seattle, a company in Seattle called Triage Wines, and um, Triage was an importer-distributor in Seattle, at the time, hoping to expand into Portland, and so he would drive down on a Tuesday, sell wine on Tuesday, and his mom lived in Portland, stay overnight, Wednesday, sell wine for those two days, and then they would send a truck down for delivery on Thursday and I kept tasting wines that he had and he and I kept running into each other at, at accounts and I really thought the wines were interesting it was mostly French and Italian wines with some some Oregon wines and um, I had told him I was maybe interested in working with with Oregon wines or excuse me with French wines and he said oh actually you know th- this isn't really sustainable what I'm doing driving down and sending the delivery truck we'd love to have somebody in Portland locally and the company's owned by two men and one of them would like to move to Portland so here's his info and, just flooded them with resumes and phone calls. And um, so I was the first employee of triage wines and the owner, um, the one of the two owners moved down and he and I basically worked to build the company for the first few years. And by the time I left, I think we had five salespeople and three, two or three delivery vans and a big warehouse. And, um, And that was, that was just a great experience for me.
1: Questions from that for you. I'm curious, first of all, about learning wine for yourself. As you were, as you were kind of being immersed in it, how were you learning what you didn't know? How were you learning about the wines in the world and the people who've made them? That, and then, how? What did you find were kind of the most successful ways to sell? Them?
2: Ultimately, the best way to learn about wine is to to taste and to to drink wine. I mean, you can read and read and read, and I absolutely did. Um, I remember, you know, my first Wine Atlas and um, books about terroir and vine to great books about the production. You know, I tried to read as much as I could, but I really felt like um, things started to click when I was able to to taste more consistently. Um, I... From there would say, "I mean, I, I, I lived with a, a friend from college at the time, and she worked for an Oregon winery, and so we would she would bring bottles home at the end of the night. I would have my bag of wines, we would invite friends over, somebody'd bring a pile of charcuterie and cheese, and we'd all just like sit around as." I mean, it's funny because it sounds quite sophisticated for people in their early 20s, but we weren't thinking at all. Because it felt very natural having come from Linfield and Oregon wine country and also living in Portland, where clearly that was, you know, a part of the the vibe in Portland. Um, And so hearing other people's opinions about wines, hearing other people's descriptions, things that they were tasting or smelling or you know picking up in the wines not just people who knew what they were talking about often I would find that I would learn more from people who were just like ah, oh, it smells like you know and you think oh it kind of does actually the power of persuasion when you're tasting is really really funny um but I loved being in tasting groups when I was young because I just learned so much from from both the wines and the people I was I was tasting with um and, and I, again, I found it was much more productive if you had a real diversity of people in the room. If you had some people who were more experienced and other people who were less so, it made for a much more kind of organic conversation and fewer people trying to impress each other um, and more people just being really honest. Um, and then as far as um, the best way to sell one, I mean, I think it's like any business. It was really about relationships. So you get to know your buyers and you get to know what they're, interested in outside of what they're doing um, day-to-day in the wine business, and pretty soon you have all sorts of things to talk about, and so, um, you know, the relationship-building piece of it was really, really crucial, and so I always enjoyed hearing about what's going on in their lives, hearing about what was going on in their kids' lives, but also talking about the wines, and so, you know, I wanted to come equipped with as much information as possible. There were definitely, absolutely times when they would ask me questions and I didn't have the answers. And so that was really great to be able to say, get back to you and, um, and to go do more reading and to ask as many questions as I could to where I could, you know. But, you know, ultimately wanted to develop enough credibility that if they had an empty shelf or they had a few open slots on the wine list, they could call and ask me and that they would trust my recommendation.
1: As you are building that the brand uh, basically from scratch, as you said, in, in Oregon, what did you find people were looking for? What helped you grow the brand? What were, what were the missing parts of
2: The brand meaning triage? triage excuse um, words, yes. That's interesting because um, triage from the very beginning was a company that was um, that sought out and promoted wines that were sustainably farmed. There are lots and lots of iterations of that and that can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. But, um, you know, some of the, one of the earliest companies to really advocate for organic viticulture and biodynamic farming and, um, and to, you know, we did tastings and seminars, kind of thematic things around, around farming. And um, that suited me really, really well. Um, and I found that there was a real interest among portland buyers to that end and that has only you know blossomed in the last 20 years obviously um but for me i really appreciated working for a company that had a a voice and that had an angle and that really tried to manage its convictions um uh you know wine like anything else there's there's factory wine and then there's there's not factory wine and um And that that was something I was never interested in and never wanted to be a part of. Um, And so I, you know, winemakers would come to town and I'd get to meet them and hear about their family histories and the domain histories and the work that they were doing and their perspectives on climate and um, ways they were adapting, excuse me. And then eventually I was able to travel and go see their vineyards and see their cellars. And now that's a very important part of of what I do. And, again it ends up being at the end of the day you sitting at their kitchen table hearing about everything from what the previous generations did to is the next generation actually going to take over the question of transmission is always a really constant uh, it's, it's just the most common thing that comes up in conversations and So yeah I mean wine brings people together and the, you know whether you're selling it or we're trying to absorb as much information from the maker as possible. The, the relationship piece of it has always been one of the, the most um, appealing for me.
1: With your interest at that point in, in French wine specifically and in Oregon wines, uh, as you started to taste more, drink more, experience more of these wines, how did you feel Oregon wine sort of fit into the sort of international wine scene at that point?
2: Well, I mean, I wasn't at the time, basically because even at that time it was becoming more and more cost prohibitive, able to taste a ton of Burgundy. It really wasn't until um, I was at IPNC, I would say that I was able to, not that I was able to taste a lot during the event. I tried to here and there, but it was just so so crazy, but my my access to Burgundy changed um, when I was working for IPNC, so I would say at the time, you know, I I didn't yet, prior to IPNC, really have a real perspective on Oregon wine relative to the rest of the wine world, only that I felt like I was a part of the Oregon wine community to some degree, really believed in the work that was being done, was, you know, very proud of the history of of Oregon wines. but qualitatively that wasn't something that I had really gotten my head around yet. Um, I think that it's people always kind of exalt Burgundy and pedestalize Burgundy. And there are lots of reasons for that. Um, But I now think not just specific to Oregon, Oregon definitely included in this, that domestic wines are some of the most compelling and and that domestic wine regions are some of the most dynamic in the wine world right now. And, And I've learned over the years that, you know, European wine authorities are much more restrictive um, in, in the rules around production, farming and production. So I do think that it's been interesting for me to understand how much liberty American wine growers have to really experiment and to explore um, both, you know, in their methods, but also in the grape varieties that they're able to plant and, you know, um, that I, I once had a conversation with, with Dominique Lafon, who is a, we could call him famous, I think, uh, Burgundian, but yeah, yeah, I think he's a Burgundian uh, wine grower in Marceau who has done a few projects in Oregon. And he was saying, you know, that basically in France, he's constantly thinking about what he isn't able to do. And he said in Oregon, the, the sky's the limit. You know, there's, the, you know, you can, you can, experiment in any way that you, you can conceive and, and, and it's going to make for a really interesting experiment at the very least and maybe in an interesting wine but that, that he always felt such limitations um, in France and so, so that's been interesting for me to understand and, it, and I feel like we're just at the beginning of understanding the potential of, of American wine regions
1: So what came next for you after, after tree
2: actions? So I left triage to come be the director of IPNC, which was a very daunting.
1: How did that come about?
2: Uh, how did that come about? Um, well, I was still pretty connected to friends and family, family, I mean, there are people who feel like family, but friends in, in, um, in McMinnville. And um, I had volunteered for IPNC over the years. Um, the very first volunteer, um, job that I had at IPNC was babysitting Veronique Druin's children Um, that was my first summer I babysit and I I have all these pictures of them on a playground in McMinnville and I saw her a few years ago and I said Veronique I have all these pictures of your kids you know I mean her kids are in their early 20s now they were little I remember taking them to the McMinnville library and there was this giant jar of marbles and they both submitted their kind of guess for the the count Neither of them were close, but n- neither was I. And I just have these funny memories. So that was my very first experience volunteering for IPNC. And then over the years, I eventually became um, uh, the, the kind of, like, person on the ground for Passport, which is now called – is it still called Passport? Yeah, Passport to Pinot. Um, and so by by Sunday of IPNC, everybody who is actually working for IPNC is, like, just your toast. So they needed a fresh person to come in and – you know, the linens go over there and the, you know, so I I did that for I think four years and got to know a lot of the IPNC folks. And of course was still like, like I said, working with the Linfield facilities folks and and the salmon patrol coach Doty would show up with all the basketball players and you know so it really it felt like this kind of merging of worlds for for personally for me um and so I think just those years of volunteering my name kind of came up and um and in in a way it felt like a a job that really suited me there were so many elements of the role that um that made a lot of sense for me, but it was also pretty daunting. It's a big job, and um, I was very nervous about it. I was also had bittersweet feelings about leaving triage because it was this thing that we had built, and um, I was really proud of it. But um, but ultimately, I think that organizational management aspects of IPNC, working with the board, um, trying to manage the wants and needs of lots and lots and lots of participants, was weirdly of interest to me um and something that i i really um loved while i was in the role what year did you take over as a director it was 08 it was four four events 08 to to 11.
1: so give me an idea then of the 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 role as you understood it when you took it and, and what it actually turned out to be
2: I don't think that, that it turned out to be something dramatically different than i envisioned i think um, understanding who i was as a person and as a professional in that role was the thing that really um, was probably surprising for me working with a board is so interesting because they are your boss essentially but especially in the case of IPNT, i can't speak to a lot of other kind of board, director relationships, but they they are your boss, but they also look to you for leadership and for, you know, kind of that visionary path forward. And um, so that was a a balance that I really had to learn. This is kind of a tightrope because I really wanted to have as many opinions in the room as possible. I clearly want common ground but not for the sake of a less interesting idea, events, vision. And so I I believe in dissension. I want voices that are going to, um, you know, I I don't want everyone in the room to agree and say, move on to the next thing. And and that certainly wasn't the case on, um, you know, there were a lot of opinions. Um, And it was at at a very difficult time. Um, 2008, we had, um, you know, the crash and um ticket sales became a real challenge which they historically hadn't been um there were some people who thought let's just bring in all the different sponsors and kind of maybe not hand over the reins but ipnc had never had official sponsorship um i was very intent on trying to keep it ours our own and ours meaning the oregon wine community the growers the international wine community that participated and I was always very hesitant to um, to have big banners of larger companies you know over salmon Bake entrance and and there were ways to engage with um, with sponsors without handing over the reins and that 's a lot of what we worked on, um, finding really creative ways to engage with our uh, the consumer participants to appeal to them to entice them to buy tickets as early as possible. There, were, It was a very difficult few years um, because it's a small organization and it's a relatively small budget for the type of event that we put on. And, um, you know, you want to make sure all the employees get paid and that it ends up being as, as luxurious and as flawless as the buying, you know, the consumer's hope for it, it to be. So I think I just learned a lot about... Um, how to allow myself to lead in a way that felt um, morally kind of representative of the Oregon wine community, um, but that also, you know, challenged us to evolve and to grow. I think, you know, for an event that's existed for at that time, 20, 25 years, you can also fall into certain patterns and take the safe way. And um, I think we really were forced to take some risks because of the conditions of the economy for those few years, but also because it was important to to evolve and to grow. And so um, I think that the the board director relationship was one that I really um, ultimately appreciated, but that was a challenging thing to navigate. And um, And then, you know, a sea of volunteers and making sure that all the people who are their butts ultimately are also having fun because it's supposed to be a thing that people look forward to every year. And and I think that, you know, the fact that we had volunteers who would come back every single year. I mean, I was one of those volunteers, but I didn't know if, if everyone was going to continue to, you know. Um, and then obviously learning about how interwoven um, all of those wine regions have have become, you know, through interns that worked at this winery in New Zealand and then worked in this winery in Burgundy and came home and opened their own winery or took over for mom and dad in Oregon or peeled off and went to California. I mean, the, 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 the web of, of that community is really, um, it's really special and something that I, I wanted to continue to kind of make, make apparent as we made our way through each of the individual years and the different themes and the different, you know, seminars and things that we, that we pursued. So you talked about being a challenging time to take over an event like that
1: and the kind of the forced evolution. So tell me a little bit about those four years. Were there things that you were particularly proud of or kind of risks you took that you look back on fondly as you are kind of pushed the event forward and deal with the reality of the economic situation?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the way that we found ways to... Um, engage with, with sponsors in less official ways. You know, um, the lamb board um, did. We did um, we did a wine and lamb pairing for the grand seminar, which was four uh, chefs, um, each who were paired with an, a winery. So we were basically serving 800 dishes of four, lamb four ways. With four different wines. And um, I think that that was very, um, uh, what's the word? Well, at the time it felt kind of aspirational um, when we came up with the idea. And then in practice it was just really very difficult. Um, but we did it and it was great. And I think it helped us realize what we were capable of. Um, and uh, bringing food, you know, food always is a major focus at IPNC, but bringing it into the kind of seminar um, fold was, was pretty wild, and, um, and I'm thrilled that we were able to pull it off. Um, but that was a way to both highlight the Lamb Board, a, pers- a, a, a sponsor that, you know, could really help our bottom line, um, but without it having to be the, the Lamb Board International you know, Pinot Noir celebration. And so we've, that's one example of, I think, ways that we found to engage with um, with sponsors in more kind of organic, less um, in your face sort of ways, you know, um, and, and a lot of those things allowed us to make pretty significant cuts on our side of the budget, allowed us to develop even stronger relationships with a lot of um organizations, companies, producers who had participated in the past but maybe not had as big of a role. Um and if anything, it just it added to the feeling of inclusivity. People felt like they were an even bigger part of it and they had a bigger, you know, stake in the game. And um and then gosh, we completely transformed the layout of the grand dinner with what was a much more intricate floor plan with a lot more lights, um, which just made it feel even kind of dreamier and more special. Um, and it was, I mean, the, the electrical kind of, you know, the, when the company showed up, I think they thought we were completely bonkers, but they made it, they made it work. And I think, I don't think, I don't know if it's exactly the same floor plan, but it's, it's it's continued something similar to what we we developed um we started doing auction lots um, which you know was a way to highlight a lot of oregon wineries and bottles in their cellars but also to to raise some funds for ipnc to ensure that that it could continue Um, and we also the way we included oregon wineries historically you could only either be a participating winery or a vineyard host. And we found ways to bring a lot more Oregon wineries on board through vineyard hosting and other ways of participating to where even if you were not a featured winery, you still had the opportunity to be a part of the IPNC weekends. You know, bigger wineries are able to afford a level of participation that smaller wineries sometimes aren't. And so we tried to come up with some sort of um, Something that could fit a lot of different uh, wineries, to where it, you know it, it didn't feel like we were just giving one face to Oregon, but we were giving a more diverse um, array of experiences, um, and so that that was also really really great. What wineries got in exchange for participation also evolved, to where we could have more bodies on Oregon wine grower bodies on the ground, hosting different tables, so the consumers who were participating felt like they were getting even more access to wine growers. It's funny, I haven't thought about a lot of this in a long time, so um, you know, things are coming to me as we, as we go. But So much of it was just finding ways to engage with more people and to broaden the community, to make more people feel like they were invested, emotionally invested and financially invested in the event.
1: whole point of our world history interview is to make you engage with things you haven't thought about yeah i mean we're
2: hitting our mark. ipnc was such a special time for me and um leaving was really really emotional for me and i haven't in the last few years because of having children and you know the way my life has changed been able to come back and um every year that last weekend of july i feel this you know i just kind of ping i just i love it i love it and i miss it and Um, I don't think I've intentionally not thought about those things, but I, you know, it just, it feels like a long time ago, actually. Talk
1: about some of the kind of unique challenges or not, maybe not unique, but the special challenges having having a board, having basically an organization built around one four-day event every year, so I'm curious, as you were getting into it, getting into your second, third, fourth uh, time running it, did you find the, the challenges remained kind of the same, or did you find that new things were kind of coming your way all the
2: time? I think both. I think um, it's like a relationship, you know, they say that uh, a couple has the same fight for their entire relationship. I mean, it felt a little like that, where you have this same thing that consistently comes up as a challenge that you're always refining, that you're always thinking about, that you're always trying to figure out, and then all these other little things that are coming at you that are just, you know, like in life. That you are rolling with the punches, and so I felt like it was a little bit of of both. Um, it's, it's remarkable that, that I think. Let's see, is it is it thirty years? I'm trying to remember. Eighty seven. Eighty seven. So it's um, like thirty five. Thirty five.
1: Yeah. It sort of didn't
2: happen. Yeah, because of the pandemic. Yeah, and so um, I think when you have a an event that is. I think exceptionally priced for the experience, but is a higher price point. You tend to have an older population that participates, and um, one of the other things that we really made a huge effort uh, toward was bringing in a younger a younger consumer set. We did some events in Portland. We did like a mini passport in Portland that you um, what do we call it? It's like the Pinot crawl, or I don't I don't remember, but. Where you um, went to different restaurants all within walking distance, and um, there were different wineries at each restaurant, you know, with their wines paired with the, the foods from those restaurants. And we engaged Portland pedicabs, and the pedicabs could like take people between the different restaurants, and, and it was in the off season, right? It was it was a meant to be a a IPNC kind of promotional event that would bring in a younger kind of group, uh, and those same you know, young Portlanders who were interested in food and wine ended up buying tickets to Passport and, you know, you just, we we really needed to find, you're always trying to find ways to stay fresh and relevant. And I think at a time when, when everybody was hurting financially, it was even more challenging, but felt like even more important to bring in a younger group and to provide some experiences that were a little bit more accessible.
1: You just mentioned that leaving IPNC was was a difficult decision. So, what caused you to leave? What was the next step for you?
2: What caused me to leave? Um, well, I I have to admit that I've always felt this pull to New York. Um, I looked at a lot of New York schools when I was uh, looking at undergrad, and just didn't have just didn't have the guts at the time, or didn't wasn't ready to leave my family. Um, but I always have felt this kind of pull east, um, and. I went to New York. A friend, a Linfield friend, uh, was on a book tour. And I went to New York with her. Um, She was doing a number of readings in New York. And while I was there, I think I posted something. I'm not sure. And Doug Planer, who is the owner of the company that I currently work for, I met when I was working for Triage because Triage was a part of a distributors kind of group that he had put together, It's essentially a way for it was, he started the, the distributor group and had distributors from different regions around the United States. It's like a industry association, essentially. And it was a way for them to, you know, share what they were doing in their respective regions. And a lot of them now share a lot of producers in common. So triage was a part of that. And so I had, I had met Doug because, um, I'd met him in France actually on a, on a trip visiting some growers, but because triage was a part of the growers or the distributors group, I had met him a couple of times, and he said, are you, are you ready to leave Oregon and come out to New York and work for us? And The French portfolio position was a position that they'd had a, a fair amount of turnover, and I think they had this idea that maybe I'd be a good fit and stick around for a while, and I was like, I'm never leaving Oregon. I have this great position, the IPNC. I feel like this is home. I feel like I'm a part of the Oregon wine community. Um, and I. Uh, was actually going through a divorce at the time, and um, had a really great trip to New York. And um, when he reached out, uh, I think a second or third time, I thought maybe I should go hear him out. And I went and interviewed and had a really great visit when I interviewed, um, and ultimately decided Based on some of the circumstances that I was going through personally, that perhaps it was something that I should be open to. Um, so I would never, I would never say that. Oh, I was getting divorced, so I'd skedaddled. But I, I have to see it all through kind of that lens. Like my life was changing personally. I'd always felt this pull. I was missing wine in a different way. While IPNC was an amazing role, as you know, far as kind of organizational management is concerned, I definitely didn't have the same kind of wine day-to-day just was not as much a part of my life, and I was missing that. And I was, I was missing, um, I certainly used French, my French language skills in IPNC, but not in the way that I had kind of hoped to. Um, and so that position kind of opened some some doors, presented some, some experiences that I think I was craving that I hadn't yet had. And, um, and I, you know, will admit now that I moved to New York, absolutely with an exit strategy thinking like oh I'll go for a couple of years I'll have some fun and then I'll come home to Oregon like I was intentionally exiling myself or something and then gonna find my way back home um and then you know you move to a place and and you realize that in order to get out of it what you're supposed to or what you you just you have to you have to be open and let life happen and so here I am 11 years later coming home to Oregon two or three times a year to visit family and friends.
1: So tell me about your initial impressions then both of, of New York as you were moving there and of the job you were walking into.
2: Oh, I was really, really, really nervous. Um, really because I had been out of, you know, consistently tasting, learning about, and selling wine. It had been a few years. I didn't know if I had the I just didn't know if I had what it took. You know, everyone says that. Like if you make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. And I I saw a comedian once who at a show in New York who was from some place in rural Idaho and he was like, none of you could make it in rural Idaho, no matter how much you've made it in New York. So I, I I didn't necessarily I mean I was intimidated by, you know, finding my way to a bigger city, the biggest city in the United States, the most dynamic wine market in the United States. Um, a very very established company with a great reputation and a portfolio that was really good but that definitely you know was open was ready for some evolution and um I think in my heart of hearts I knew that I could do it but I was I was quite intimidated by both New York and the, the position but I also really um when I'm intimidated by something I'm I'm even that much more curious about it and I have even more of a desire to pursue it. it just fuels the fire I think so I think so I mean not not just for the sake of taking a risk you know I'm, I'm also quite measured and um, and and um, you know, I look back now and realize that maybe it was pretty gutsy, like, moving your life across the country by yourself and going and doing this thing, um, but, uh, you know, a real risk taker would move to New York with no job. <laughs> I'm not that kind of risk taker, you know? <laughs> so, and I know people who do that, and I'm like, yeah, I'll just see what happens. I'm not a see what happens type, but I definitely um, finally allowed myself to just, like, live life in New York and, and let things unfold.
1: So with the, with the position you mentioned, an established portfolio, but room for growth. So some, sort of similar to what you were at IPNC, with the, an established program but room for growth. So I'm curious, as you approach something like that, did it feel familiar, or did it feel like you were kind of in a whole new in a whole new world?
2: It, it felt familiar in the sense that you know importation and distribution was something that I had done and. The, the kind of philosophy around uh, you know, organic and biodynamic or sustainably farmed wines was something that was, you know, also um, part of Polaner's reputation and um, had long been a, a stance or a position that they had taken in the market. Um, the sheer volume of wine that moves in New York was really intimidating to me. Um, you know, I remember working with the distributor, excuse me, uh, yeah, a distributor, or an importer who had come to work with Triage, we were the distributor. And we were at a wine shop and the buyer loved what we were, and he said, I'll take, I'll take five, three, six, you know, anyway, we leave and the, the importer's like, we just sold 20 cases of wine. I'm like, no, we just sold 20 bottles of wine. Um, because it's a COD state, it's a cash on delivery state. So when wine is delivered, you know, they pay. And so people are ordering exactly what they have shelf space for, and you know, in New York, you just send pallets and pallets and pallets of wine to places. And, and that was pretty wild for me to just see the quantities of wine that that moved. Um, you know, I, I remember I did an interview with, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a podcast called I'll Drink to That, Levy Dalton. It was probably a year into my time in New York. And he kind of revealed to me in, in a kind sort of way in the interview that, you know, I had moved to New York and was now in charge of this, or responsible for, I should say, this portfolio that had at the time, many even more now, but at the time, a lot of allocated wines, like in-demand wines, and you have to figure out who's going to get those wines. It's not the wines you've got to go pedal and say, like, you should be buying this. This is why it's compelling. It's the, I can get you three bottles. And, um, and I really, you know, was moving to a market that I didn't really know, and allocations are tricky because there's certainly it's in the numbers you know you give it to your best supporters but there are also like anything a lot of political kind of elements to doing allocations the grower wants to make sure their wine's in that restaurant and so you're doing a lot of leveraging and so when I moved there that was a really interesting part of my new job was that the, the allocation kind of game the allocation landscape and Levy kind of revealed to me that there was you know murmurs of, you know, who is this girl from Oregon who moves to New York and tells me I can have three or six bottles. And those are some customers now of mine who would be like, six bottles, great, thanks, wit. But, you know, at the time, it, you know, it was, and so that's a funny thing. For, it was funny when he said it, because I thought, well, that makes sense that people would feel that way. But I just had to believe that the decisions we were making and that nothing, nothing was made. No decisions were ever made individually or in a vacuum. You know, everything's very democratic at planner. So three other people would look at my allocation spreadsheets before they would ultimately be, you know, disseminated. And so but that was a funny thing that, that, you know, New York is it's still wine is still a small community and there's still, you know, all of the drama and the politics and everything that you would have in a small town, you have in the big city of New York as well.
1: So how did you work to update uh, and to evolve the, the portfolio while also dealing with the kind of the drama, the politics that you're, that you're discussing?
0: Well,
2: um, th- there are always regions that are kind of hot, regions that are, you know, interesting and there's where there's real demand in the market. So you might have a period where, you know, northern Rhone wines are really resonating and you might want to find another grower or two, or maybe you just need to buy more selections from a grower that you were working with, whereas, you know, you started working with them and you wanted to make sure things were going well, so you bought one or two wines, and now you have an offering of five or six wines from them. And and so some of it is dictated by the demands of the market, things that are trending, things that are... um, That's not to say you're doing things that are trendy. You still, in going to those regions, want to find growers who are like-minded, who are, you know, going to fit in to the portfolio either not cannibalize an existing producer or are going to just be a different perspective or a different style from that region. And so a lot of it's curation. It feels like curation. Um, and so um, so some of it is responding to the demands of the market. Other is coming across something you find compelling and creating demands. And that happens from time to time too. And so many of our contacts come from, you know, you decide you need uh two more producers in the Macine and the Beaujolais, you know, producer you work with in the neighboring regions, like, I got three guys you gotta go visit, you know, and they're his buddies or they're wines that he's drinking and so we often have like, oh if you like what I'm doing, go see my pal down the road. And that just that is endlessly interesting to me. I just love that. And so it's this constant game of discovery and not just of wines, but of people and of regions and sub regions and Vineyards that are within that region And, um, and so that I've, I've absolutely loved and, um, and you know As a company, it's not just me obviously It's you know, Doug Polanner and Tina Have a real vision and so it's really about Us figuring out, again 25 year old Company, how do we stay fresh, how do we stay Relevant, how do we continue to do things That honor our philosophy And that are representative of the work That we have always been doing, but at the same Time show that we are willing to take a risk, or are willing to stick our ne- necks out for a region, a grower, a producer, a grape that maybe is unknown, and we're gonna we're gonna give it the attention that it deserves. And I think that I always just I want to always bring it back to farming. You know, there are lots of New York, but in general, I think we we all tend to kind of like find our way to flashy things, and um, it's really easy to get distracted by the the bright lights. And I. I'm just, um, I find if we can always bring the conversation back to farming, um, it, it grounds, for lack of a better term, um, everyone involved.
1: You mentioned finding products, finding wines you found compelling, or finding something you found compelling, and creating a market for it. So, in the time you've, you've been working in with this portfolio, what has been compelling for you, and how do you, once you find something like that, create
2: a market for it? Um, I love champagne. Um, It's funny when you work in the wine business, people always say, what's your favorite wine? That's a really hard question to answer because it's just, it's not answerable. And I always just say champagne, which is not what they're looking for. They're looking for like the yellow, whatever. They want a description of the label so they can go find it. But champagne for me is one of the most exciting dynamic uh, wine regions and um, a wine region that has transformed in the last well in the last hundred years but really in the last 25 years and um, and triage and polanner both had growers in common at the time that were at the forefront of a lot of those evolutions a kind of a transition from what it meant to perfect the bubble making champagne to actually um a farming kind of evolution with these last this last generation and rather than these multi village, multi vintage blends, which are also really interesting from the bigger houses, but people making champagne, like wine is made everywhere else from, you know, a single vineyard or a single vintage, Um, in many cases with lower dosage. So you have a little less masking um, that's dependent upon a certain quality of farming, but um, that's been very, very interesting to me um, to learn more about champagne and how it's evolved. and it's a major focus for Planner. And I think now we've developed enough of a um, reputation in the industry that we can start with a new grower and I can send a few emails and be like, you gotta, you know, are you interested in, send me a case, you know? And so it might be a tiny grower. It doesn't feel like a, a huge risk because there's not really so much that, you know, there's not really enough to go around. And so you can have uh, a really interesting um, portfolio of a lot of smaller growers and kind of, and get people things here and there and, and keep it keep it fresh um, so champagne is one one area um, I would say I, I had a really um, powerful experience with um, Mimi Castile of Hopewell and Francois Chiden who is a grower in the Lower Valley in Montnuy. Um he grows Chenin Blanc and Mimi, for many, many years, she's family to me. One of my dearest friends has been uh, helping me to understand um, the work that she's doing, and um, and so I've I've been absorbing a lot of her kind of just so much information from Mimi around regenerative farming, and went on a visit to see Francois, and um, ultimately felt like. I was hearing Mimi's words, but on the other side of the world, from someone who also felt somewhat isolated farming the way he was farming, and I was able to to put them together. Mimi came to, to France um, with me, and uh, we spent some time with Francois, and ultimately it blossomed into a really great relationship between the two of them, but also the beginnings of, of conversations around a, a new type of farming, relatively new to people in the wine business, you know, the cattle grazing community has been talking about regenerative farming for, for a very long time and they're really at the forefront of a lot of the, the work that's happening. And, um, and so regenerative agriculture has now made its way into the, the wine conversation and, and I really felt like we, as a company, had a major role in that. We did a seminar in New York with Mimi Francois and with a, um, a man who's the head of a, a cattle farming, a growers association. There was no wine in the room. Um, and it was about a two-hour conversation and people were completely blown away and it was really eye-opening for a lot of people And um, so I think that's a way that I don't want to say we created demand for regenerative farming that, or regeneratively farmed wines ultimately I would love it if you know, there was more and more demand for sustainably farmed wines because it's just about moving the needle but, but we did um, we did change the conversation and um, and I really feel like now it's, you know, funny, i becoming like a buzzword and whether or not the people who are using it are actually employing the practices or not is, you know, it's the same risk you take by, you know, promoting organic and biodynamic wines. You never know, like, where the holes can be poked and how true, true is. But, um, but I really feel like we, we took a position and we changed the conversation and, um, and I'm proud of that. And those are two examples, I guess.
1: How true true is, is a very classic liberal arts student. So thank you for inserting some of that into this interview. Proof of Linfield existence. So I'm curious, uh, we talked earlier really about kind of selling wine and some of the things you've learned about selling wine. So I'm curious, in this role, uh, with all of the things you're learning, the, 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 the ability to be inspired by things like that, how often do you find reception receptiveness on the other end are people as interested in some of these things as you find yourself or your company or is it kind of uh, i need this wine
2: for this portfolio and i don't really care about this for a it depends on the buyer like anything you have people who are just going through the motions and they gotta check everything off their list and and move on and then you have people who are are really interested i also think um passion is contagious and so if you are genuinely excited about something it's unusual that someone won't at least listen to you whether they want to be along for the ride is another thing but um but i think people can really sense if you're fired up about something that you know maybe they should tune in for a little while and i think that's um that that at least gets you in the door. Whether or not it translates into sales is a whole nother thing. But um, it just it's advocacy. If you're really you know, if you feel strongly about something and you go to bat, um, you're going to see some sort of progress. It's hard though because I you know, I feel a real responsibility um, to the growers that uh, we represent. And um, every once in a while, there'll be something that you really believe in that's really good. And for whatever reason, it's just not getting the traction that it needs and, um, and figuring out why, you know, do we need to tweak the label or, you know, we're never going to be an importer that says, oh, you need to put 20% more new oak on that wine. Never, ever, 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 ever. You make the wine, we're, you, we, you do your job, we do ours. But if our job reveals that that label's just too ugly, then we have to do something about it. And so that's our job to help you find a label that's going to better represent the wine that's in the bottle. You know, So sometimes you have to make changes. Other times at, at some point you raise the white flag because you just realize you've literally pounded the pavement and it's just not working. And for whatever reason, maybe that wine winery would be better represented better suited to another distributor's portfolio for whatever reason and that's a difficult decision to make because whether it's you or the winery making the decision um, because when we start a relationship it's really with the idea that it's long term it's we don't dabble it's not oh yeah let's try that see how it works out if it doesn't work out we'll, we'll move on these are people's this is livelihood and so when we decide to move forward together it's really for the long haul and we're going to do what we need to do to you know represent you.
1: How has your role evolved in the, in the time you've had this position? What, what, what's different now than when you took the job?
2: Well, I think, you know, when you start a job, you, you m- most times have a job description. Um, but the best owners or managers understand I think that person well suited to a position will help that position to transform and evolve and um, so I, I was really intent in my early years at Planner being very very present in the market and I spent a lot of time in the market Um challenging because there are a lot of administrative aspects of my job that I still have to stay on top of and if you're out in the market there are emails that still need to be answered who knows when but you, you figure out that balance I, um, I think that's something that the brand management roles of planner had always had market presence, but I think I might have changed the expectation for how much time you spend in the market and how you engage with um, with customers I also really um, the the events we do and the type of events like the seminar that I referenced earlier are things that had not previously happened you know it's really easy to wine 's interesting you know you 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 have somebody who makes it, somebody who sells it, and somebody who buys it, and there aren't that many different ways for that transaction to happen. Tastings are the most common, set up a bunch of tables, people walk around in a circle, they taste everything, they decide what to buy and they leave. And, um, and I, I think partly because of my experience at IPNC with seminars, digging into a topic, sharing a lot of perspectives on that topic, felt like there was another way to engage with our customers and for people to, to really um, get their heads around what we were, what we were promoting. And so that's, I, I'm you know, clearly not the only one, but I do think that the, the event aspect of it, the way we kind of um, presented ourselves in the market via events and seminars was something that I probably had some influence over in my time
1: social beverage it makes
2: sense that you would sell it that way. Yeah yeah but you know um, people want information and the more information they have the more included they feel and um, I just I don't like the exclusive aspects of the wine business. It's never been something that's been appealing to me. I don't care about gilded wall sconces. I just don't care. It's not what is interesting to me. Um, it's not what I'm passionate about and you know, if I could take every single customer into the vines, that would be great. But I just can't, so I have to find ways to tell those stories, to, to lessen that gap.
1: So you mentioned uh, off camera before we started that you were you were kind of leaving the area, right, as Linfield's wine program was getting started. So I'm curious, uh, what your what role you had in, in getting, helping Linfield's wine program get going and sort of your perspectives on how the Linfield-Wine relationship has evolved in the last decade.
2: It was such a treat for me to be involved in the early, the kind of early planning stages. You know, I, I really, Dr. Helley was such a visionary and I, I really think, you know, at some point he just realized that there were a lot of Linfield students who ended up in the wine business completely logical it's our backyard what could we be doing to intentionally prepare students for careers in the wine business and he he brought he invited me to participate in those conversations very very early on and then um, you know at the time we had a just a a minor and um, I was able to meet with um, board members you know who were interested and to kind of help um, everyone kind of see a path forward there were lots of interesting conversations Um, he at the time was engaging with a lot of oregon winery principals to become board members which i think was another way to kind of bring things full circle Um, in the early years jan term was the most logical way to be able to give students access so um, i can't remember if it was two or three jan terms where we did um, Pretty, pretty big month of um, tasting, winery visits, and classroom education. First two weeks in Oregon, next two weeks in Burgundy. Mostly visiting Burgundy producers who had some sort of link with Oregon, um, and I traveled with the students in Burgundy, and it was a blast. I just, I just loved it. I had so much fun. I would love to be able to do it again. Um, obviously now that we have uh, an an endowed chair and a major and all those things things have evolved you know in a in a really big way thankfully you know there's some funding to really um see a you know a real program ahead it's so fun to be with you know uh, uh, oh wine studies major, at the time, you know, we were thinking, oh, you know, how much of it's gonna be agricultural, you know, could there be real viticultural elements to the, the program? How much is, you know, scientific, biochem, all those things, how much focus is there going to be on marketing? Because ultimately marketing and accounting are two of the areas where Oregon wineries are feeling like they have the most need. There are already programs, Davis, Chemeketa, you know, that have X, Y, and Z, and so, Seeing how all the pieces have come together um, has really been fun. I, I definitely am now just a voyeur and a supporter. And no, I mean I haven't. I haven't been because the program took off. You know, I was just really happy to be a part of the early conversations and the January term trips. I think were, at, you know, just so special. The, spending time with the students. Dr. Helly came, um, Jeff Peterson, you know, we just, we had such a great crew, um, it's a lot, a lot of fun. Michael, um, right, have to- yeah, what a sweet guy.
1: So as you've seen it evolve and been, been part of it, and now just kind of watching from far, uh, where do you sort of think it is right now as a program and where do you hope it goes next?
2: I mean, to be really honest, I I have felt a little bit disconnected, so I don't know exactly where it is right now. I do hope that um, something Dr. Helly and I talked about that I would love to help facilitate in years to come is finding ways for Linfield students in their study abroad opportunities, being able to intern, work, engage with wineries, during those study abroad opportunities. So it wasn't, it could be while they're studying, it could be in the year after studies, but that there's more of an exchange opportunity happening both between the college and wineries, international wineries, it doesn't just have to be in France. You could have a Spanish, you know, minor wine studies major go work somewhere for a winery in Spain. I mean, I I feel like there's so many opportunities for exchanges there. Um, both for study and for interning, and I would love to be a part of, of helping to make that happen. Um, but perhaps that's already happening and I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I, I just have felt um, away enough from, from things um, that I, I would like to, to re-engage. Some of this is because I haven't had two kids during the pandemic, <laughs> two kids,
1: <laughs> two, two, kids two pandemic
2: babies, 3, yeah, exactly.
1: so I'm I'm curious as, uh, on that note as well. Uh, in getting back to sort of your part of the story, uh, how have the past couple of years gone uh, in in your work and in, in life? What have been the, what are the impacts you've seen from the pandemic and from other world events on life and work?
2: When I mean, I remember going to a tasting, I think on March 13th, and I think New York shut down on March 16th, if I... My birthday was on the 17th, which I remember, because it was a very anticlimactic birthday. Not that, like, I was going to go out and, you know, paint the town red or anything, but it was... I was in my pajamas at home thinking... I mean, you know, in the very beginning, we didn't know what. It was very scary, and New York was so hard hit. And I was pregnant, and going to you know, ultrasound appointments, masked. My partner couldn't go in with me. So we have all these, you know, FaceTime screenshots where he's looking at the sonogram via the screen. Cause he can't be there to see it. I remember pulling into the hospital one day and we got stuck behind three morgue trucks, giant morgue trucks. It was a very, very scary time to be in New York. And I think even about, you know, my family in Eastern Oregon and listen, Eastern Oregon has been, um, uh, uh, you know casual about the pandemic um, and it 's hard to actually explain to them what it was like, how scary it was you know we were scrubbing our vegetables and our fruit you know before we ate it you know I mean, it's just wild um, people when the you know when things get tough people drink, so the wine business felt like Christmas every day i mean we couldn't we could not get enough wine here to meet demand. The, our, you know, retail customers didn't have enough employees to, you know, satiate their customers. Restaurants were all closed. So you have a whole subset of wines, whole groups of wines that are more restaurant wines that you got to find homes for. Um, It was very bizarre. I mean, ultimately we, we did rather well because of the pace and the demand of the retail market. Um, but, you know, your friends who work in the restaurant business, who many of whom left New York and who, you know, went home to their, you know, where they grew up. And now they open restaurants in Livingston, Montana. Or, in, you know, you have all these, like, hip, edgy restaurants opening up in all these, like, pockets of the country because people were like, I can't I can't live here. You know, my PPE check is not going to pay my New York rent. And um, so it was pretty wild. Personally, it's been utterly joyful because I had two adorable kids and I remember feeling a little bit of guilt around that feeling like I had all this permission to be home with my child yeah I was still when I went back to work still working but I was working at home we had more time with her than we would have ever had otherwise my pregnancy was much quieter I did yoga six days a week while I was pregnant you know with my second child it was like you know the only exercise I did was running around chasing my toddler because life, life was busy again. It was still the pandemic, but we were all figuring out ways to continue to live our lives. So um, I did have a little bit of guilt in the beginning about enjoying the pandemic so much with our kid, going on walks. You know, it was just quiet. It's just a really peaceful, sweet, joyful time. And her brother definitely came into the world in a, a different, different pandemic. It's different. We all, you know... But Flora's now vaccinated. Um, We still have one unvaccinated kid, but in six months we'll get him vaccinated and we'll try to figure out how to, we're still quite careful.
1: So what comes next for you then, uh, both sort of personally and professionally? What are you looking ahead to in the rest of this year and
2: beyond? Well, I'm just in my last week of leave, maternity leave. And so um, I'll go back to work after Labor Day. Um, My partner, is a buyer in New York, and he started a new position for um, a really dynamic, growing wine shop called Leon & Son. But he started, we had, we moved two weeks before Izzy was born to a new apartment, and we had his yes, moving at eight and a half months pregnant with a toddler, I would advise against, but the alternative was moving with a newborn and a toddler, so I feel like we played things pretty well. So we've just been going through a lot of transitions, and me going back to work is, you know, kind of the, next um, the next one and so um, we're just gonna figure out you know how to do it I I figure lots and lots of people have done it before us we can figure it out but it's gonna be intense Um, but otherwise I'm looking forward to being back in touch with growers and customers you know professionally Um, I will have to have to I will go to France two or three times next year just because not only because of having kids, but because of the pandemic. I went three years. I go to France usually three times a year and I've not gone in almost three years, which is two and a half, which is a lot. And so I, you know, I really need to reconnect with some growers. Um, And so, yeah, we'll see. I I, I do feel like there's nothing like kids to make you really, really live in the moment. And um, so that's been nice to to be preparing for this next transition, but also to recognize that, like, I'm thinking about the next nap. It, it really changes how you look to the future.
1: With that said, are there sort of aspirations or goals that you're still looking to, uh, is there some a challenge you're looking to take on at some point?
2: A professional one, or? Sure, professional or personal? Um, personal, I um, had a really, um, a nice period prior to having kids of um, doing triathlons and I ran the New York Marathon and really missing not specifically triathlons and marathon, but uh, competing. I would really love to do something physically competitive again. I mean, I'd like to just do a yoga class, but um, if we're thinking big picture, I would I'd like to get to a point where I can be doing some events like that again. Um, so that's a personal thing. Um, professionally, Professionally, I still feel quite happy in my role. I definitely miss Oregon a lot. I would love to for us to find a way to have a more bi-coastal existence. I don't really know what that looks like or what that means. I remember when I moved to New York and I would meet people that did that, and I thought, how do you do that? How is that possible? Um, but I, you know, I'd love for us to try to find a way to be here more. Um, And I don't know if there's a professional element at play there that would make that possible. Um, But I definitely want to spend some more time with family now that we have kids. I'd love for them to have more time with their grandparents and aunts and uncles and all of that. And um, I'd love to just be in the Oregon wine um, community again. And so that's something I'm thinking about but have actually zero answers for you as to how we might achieve it. So it's more, it's very much more of an end goal, but there's a lot of um, missing pieces to get there.
1: The best kind of aspiration. No real idea how to get there, exactly. but it's, it's, it's on the horizon. Exactly. So, 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 oh, so speaking of the Oregon wine industry, I'm curious from your perspective, what you, what you how you've seen it grow up uh, at the time you've been aware of it and in it and uh, watching it from afar. Uh, and what it kind of looks like to you now from from your vantage point.
2: It's so interesting because when I started at Hill, which is now 20 years ago, um, even then it was just just growing so rapidly and um, now there's just been so much more money has come in and so much more land has been for lack of a better term, consumed. And um, there's elements of that that are really exciting, but also concerning. I, um, I would really love for there to be more protections on um, land in the Willamette Valley. I don't know if we need another acre under vine. Um, so I think Oregon is at a really interesting turning point deciding what it wants to look like I almost feel, and maybe I'm misreading this, but I felt even more so from afar that, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but there's sometimes a little like inferiority complex um, relative to California and, and maybe Burgundy, but more California, because California feels like the, there's always this desire to kind of Dismiss California because maybe it's hotter there, or it's, you know, there's some very cool coastal areas that grow pinot noir in California. But, but I feel like Oregon is its best self when it is holding on to the most authentic elements, its beginnings, its roots, and really a strong commitment to sustainable sustainability. And I don't just mean. I mean I don't even like the word sustainability because I don't think it is descriptive enough. I don't think it's deep enough or thorough enough. I think that needs to Address things beyond the land. It needs to address the quality of life for the, you know the people working the land and the people working at the wineries. And so sustainability, it, it, I feel like Oregon could actually be a true leader in um, in land preservation and in in um, natural farming. And I, I always feel like. Sonoma's a little better at telling its story to that end or, you know, any number of other regions. And Oregon is so primed for it. Oregon has everything it, it needs, ultimately. And um, just something I chew on here and there. Being in New York, I feel like there are only, you know, a handful of Oregon wineries that are really, really, really present. Um, I do find it really exciting that you have more certainly more young people, but more um, wineries, say like like Johan, for example, um, in addition to the wines that they make, they're growing, I don't even know how many different grape varieties that they're growing now, and they're doing it for these smaller wineries that don't have land, that want to make a Moulin de Bourgogne or want to make a Gruner, and I, I think given still how young the Oregon wine business is, there could be grapes that could really thrive in Oregon that, um, you know, could be very well suited to the terroirs of Oregon and the changing climate of Oregon. I think, you know, it's really hot outside today and we went and got a bite and my partner was like, is Oregon gonna have wine in 20 years? And I said, yeah, but they might be growing a lot more Syrah and Gamay. I don't know what that's gonna look like, but I think a, a place like Johan, where you have so many different grape varieties growing and you can see not just their, you know, evolution in the vineyards, but also the the different uh, examples of them among a lot of the smaller, younger wineries that are buying their fruit. It's just going to give us a, a more comprehensive kind of bigger picture view of what Oregon is capable of long term. And then I think that the more that the kind of foundering wineries and those early year wineries can continue to make really authentic, unmasked wines. The you know the better a, a winery like Irie always comes to mind because the style has really not wavered since the very beginning and that's that's it's a, a really impressive a really impressive thing it's something I I admire a lot. Last
1: question I have for you uh, some more to ask you for advice or words of wisdom on getting into the Oregon wine industry into the wine industry in general. What would
2: you tell them? It's interesting. It's so much uh, harder now to get into the industry than it was when I was starting. Um, I feel like, you know, the way I did it was I was kind of thrown to the wolves, and like I learned as I went. I was able to taste, I was able to, you know, experiment. And now I think there's much more pressure for people to have credentials. <laughs> we didn't have to have credentials. And there's still, you know, people who work in the restaurant business for a long time, get to taste a ton of wines and clearly have wine chops as a result. And, they're in, you know, they're able to figure their way into the, the industry. But I, I definitely think there's a real pressure for credentials. And I, I think going to work a Harvest is a really good place to start. I think getting your head around the very, very, very basics... Um, is so exciting. Obviously, having programs like the program that Linfield has, where you can start really early in your studies. Um, You know, the WSET, all the different things that are out there, um, I I feel like they're interesting and important because they provide access, but I also think, um, you know, a lot of the tests around tasting and everything kind of teach people to taste and and decipher in a specific way, and wine is so subjective um, that I think as much kind of tasting as you can do in um, more informal settings, more freeform settings, um, the better. And um, and having some fun with it, I think is you know I I really I really think in most cases if you're really enjoying what you're doing you're eventually going to thrive and so working a harvest, tasting as much as you can and then obviously trying to have I think an international experience would be a really really good way to go. I have found that through my language learning and you know ability to communicate in another language it just opened a lot of doors for me and um, Everyone who works in the wine industry and has a position like mine in the wine industry speaks another language. Our Italian portfolio manager speaks Italian. It's important because the way you need to engage with wineries, you know, it needs to be on their, um, you know, on their home turf.
1: some of the questions that I have for you. Anything I didn't ask that I should have Oh, gosh, no. I, that we you have asked covered. way more
2: than I would have ever, <laughs> ever um, imagined. But I really, it was nice talking with you.
1: <laughs> it's great talking with you as well. It was nice to finally meet, and, and we really appreciate you taking the time to share your stories with us and, and talk about why I'm like a unicorn interview for me so this is awesome oh that's so funny well it's
2: my pleasure and I um I'm so sorry it took this long but you know obviously when I'm home it's usually such a short period of time and so many people to see and so I'm so glad that it worked out and I love what you guys are doing I you know I always feel really proud when I'm seeing you know it, what's wild is that there's so many people you're interviewing now who are you know have come to the Oregon wine business in the last 10 years who I don't I don't know who they are I've never met them, and so following their stories and it's been really fun for me to see the work that you're doing and I, I always think that the, you know, that the photos and captions and everything are really compelling. So, as a, as a Linfield alum, I'm really proud of the project and happy to have participated today.
1: We really appreciate that, both parts of that. So thank you so much and we'll let you off of hook.
0: Thanks.